the ultimate sports podcast, your one-stop shop for all your sporting news and discussion. We're back with another sports news episode. It's been a fair little while since we last recorded one of these, so we've got plenty to digest. We're talking tennis controversy. There's a huge darts recap. The first ever discussion of cricket on this podcast. Snooker being a test dummy for events. The Olympics might be off still. And then there's some smaller news pieces in golf, horse racing, and the 10-year, $503 million NFL contract. As always, I'm joined by Toby to discuss through this and our friend Michael Gillett today. How are you doing, lads? Good to be here, yeah. Really good to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so we're going to start with the tennis, mainly because it's Michael's speciality with the controversy in the US and Washington Open. And I'll let you explain it, Mike. Yeah, so the US Open is still going ahead in a few weeks' time. It's going to be behind closed doors, but it's all seeming a little bit like it's uh, too much, a bit too soon. Washington, which is a 500 ATP tournament, so that, for those people who don't know, it's it's sort of a smaller tiered ATP tournament. It's almost like the Queen's is to Wimbledon. It's like the warm-up tournament for the US. That has cancelled because of the coronavirus situation in America, but the US Open is still insistent that that won't affect it and it's going ahead and it's I think it's it's very questionable that the US Open and in fact the Cincinnati Masters which is being played the week before the US Open at the same venue so it's very much feels like two of the same tournament they're both going ahead so it's, it's very questionable I think and it feels a bit early there was meant to be two Masters before the US Open but the Rogers Cup which is in Canada was suspended quite a while ago but the Cincinnati Masters and as I say it's now just being played at Flushing Meadows where the US Open will be played the next week that's still going ahead so it, it's very weird because they're going to have a Grand Slam in a few weeks and they're not really going to have any warm-up tournaments for it apart from the Cincinnati Masters what you think they're so desperate to hold it money is probably just the, money yeah the main thing but well i don't know that's probably doing it a bit of a disservice i guess the players are desperate to get back you know it must be hard for a professional tennis player when you spend your whole life training and competing and traveling i can understand that it is a bit hard for months and months not to have any competitive tennis personally it's i was hoping they would just start afresh at the beginning of next year for the australian swing because the situation situation's better out there but you know obviously I want tennis back as well it's quite hard to know which way you want it to go really do you think individually the US tournament I'm guessing it's a no should go ahead then it's all about how it's done I think if it's run well and they have the strict guidelines in place and everybody follows them then uh, fair enough maybe they could have it because it's only tennis you don't have to be within two meters of each other you don't have to have loads of close-up contact so if it's done properly I don't see why it shouldn't go ahead but the problem is is will it be done properly we saw with the Adria Tour tournament that Novak Djokovic organised and, and that was an absolute mess and they all started going down with coronavirus after that and you know they've got to make sure in the US the same thing doesn't happen yeah we spoke about that on the last Sports News episode and I think if anything like that happened it was an absolute disaster yeah. I do tend to agree with you tennis should be back and even in the US where coronavirus is the situation's a lot worse than over here in the rest of Europe if you do it behind closed doors as you say done properly that shouldn't be a problem yeah I think it all depends on how they do it and Hopefully the Adria Tour can be a, a good sort of learning lesson for the US Open to look at and learn from the mistakes of the Adria Tour. But, you know, there's a lot riding on tennis as well, really, because I think the return of football has actually been quite successful in my eyes. And, and the US Open get this wrong. I think tennis as a sport, especially with the Adria Tour coming before, is going to look quite shameful, I think, on the sport. 
Yeah, and where the tournaments haven't been cancelled in the US, that's not the case in China. Yeah, so uh, China announced, I believe it's today, or I only heard the news today, it might have been yesterday, it was announced, the Chinese swing has been cancelled, which comes every fall just after the US Open. For the men, there's a very small tournament in Chengdu, and then there's Beijing, which is a 500 tournament, a bit bigger. You quite often get some of the big players playing at that, and then there's the Shanghai Masters, which is one of the last big tournaments of the year. You'd see the big three, everyone would be playing at that, but they're all off now which is interesting because even though obviously the coronavirus first emerged in China the situation now over in China is a lot better than it is in America it's interesting that they're off and and the US Open is still on just on the US Open Mike obviously all form pretty much goes out the window with so little tennis really professional and competitive tennis being played since the extended pandemic break but do you have a, a tip for the US Open, who's your winner and who's perhaps you one to watch as well? I don't like to play it safe with my predictions, but I kind of am going to have to because I, I honestly think anyone could win it. I think, I'll tell you what, I'd be surprised if a top three player out of, well, team is third actually, but when I say like the big three, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, I might actually be a little bit surprised if one of them does win it. That sounds a bit bold to say but I think it's so open I think anybody could go for it I would definitely watch out for players like Dominic Team, who if he can pick up where he left off before the break he could be a, a good pick because he, he should have won the Australian Open really and it showed massive improvement on a hard court and the US Open traditionally is the one where the most upsets happen you've had Marin Cilic winning it I think that was back in 2014 Stan Ravrinka won it I want to say 2017 might have been 2016 you do tend to get some quite big upsets at the US Open so could be anyone's game I hate to be safe but um, it really could be anyone's game there's not going to be any spectators am I right there yeah yeah so it's going to be behind closed doors that's what I understand from it one thing I've noticed obviously I'm a big darts fan I've been watching the world match play darts this week I know we're going to talk about that a bit later on but one thing I've noticed is they've been playing on a big stage but without the usual crowd and it's really helped some of the outsiders I wonder if this actually is applicable to tennis as well that the major players you know the top three players would have had all the crowd going for them and cheering for them and it would have been sometimes quite intimidating for the lesser players that they played in or the lower ranked players that they played in the earlier round so I wonder if this could actually be a help to some of those lesser ranked players when they haven't got great big crowds roaring or perhaps in the case of Djokovic who we know struggles sometimes with the crowds and with people cheering for his opponent whether that could be of help to him as well it'd be interesting to see what new dynamic it adds to it because they're playing behind closed doors I think that's a really good point and it's not I must say it's not actually one I've actually thought a lot about but when you say that it's a very good point someone like Roger Federer you would think would maybe suffer from it because wherever Federer goes he I mean, he's essentially like a god. He just walks around and everyone's following him, cheering. I think yes and no, though, with the underdog players, because I do think a lot of the underdog players do tend to get support at times. Like, if I was on centre court at Wimbledon in sort of the second round and I was watching Nadal against a young and -and up-and-coming player, someone like maybe a Felix Auger-Aliassime, who's a young Canadian guy, just about top 20 now, I would be supporting... Felix because I'd want to see an upset and I I think a lot of people do take 
that path as well. I think you do see quite a bit of support for the underdogs, so I do think sometimes it might obstruct them a little bit. But yeah, it's interesting to know. I think the, the ones that won't like it will obviously be the American players because they would get they'll be used to getting a lot of support at the US Open players like John Isner, Sam Query, etc. So yeah, but it will be interesting to see what impact you know, fans has on it. There has been some tennis back that we've not covered. It's the exhibition matches. Now, we mentioned Mike is a big tennis fan. He also has his own podcast, Tennis Fanalyst, which I highly recommend. You've only done a few episodes now. Yeah, so myself and my good friend, Marcus Sally, started a podcast called The Tennis Fanalyst. It's only once a week at the moment, but we're hoping when the tennis actually returns, we're going to do it twice a week as sort of like a preview show and a review show of the weekly tournaments. But yeah, essentially it's all just about the ATP tour and all the action going on. There's a bit of trivia in it as well. If people want to put their tennis knowledge to the test, you know, definitely have a little listen. And yeah, we'll be looking forward more so when there's some actual tennis on. But at the moment we are recording weekly. So if you're interested in listening, definitely uh, get involved. Yeah, I'll include a link. It is worth checking out if tennis is your sport. Now, one sport we're going to talk about now, which has plenty to catch up on, is the darts. So we're going to start with the summer series. Yes, darts is back. I suppose that's the big news. I always suspected it was going to be one of the first sports to return owing to the nature of the game and the way that, you know, a lot of human contact isn't really necessary. And so it's proved. And we had first off a couple of weeks ago now the PDC Summer Series, which was held in Milton Keynes. All the players were quarantined and they were tested for coronavirus before they went in. And they spent five days playing five different darts tournaments all against each other, all the pros. Across those five days, we saw four different winners. The world number one, Michael Van Gerwen, won two of them. James Wade, experienced player, won one of them. The world champion, Peter Wright, won another. And an outsider, Ryan Joyce, won the fifth tournament, which is promising to see somebody outside the usual old guard winning one of the uh, newest tournaments. But it was interesting to see because, as I said to Mike about the tennis, all form really had gone out the window. So it was intriguing to see which players had uh, perhaps practiced more than others during the extended break. Some players admitted to having barely practiced at all and spending a lot of time with their families and making the most use out of the three or four months that they had off. And I suppose the big thing about the summer series really were two nine-dart finishes from Rob Cross and from Darren Webster. Always enjoyable to see, but it showed that they had definitely been practicing to hit those. And they do seem to be becoming more common these days on the Pro Tour the nine darters. I think we had close to 40 last year, whereas in previous years it would be considered a real rarity and you'd be lucky if you got one a year. So it just shows how much the standard is improving. Darts is no longer just a pub game. It's very much a sport and it's very much competitive now. And you see back in sort of the 90s, an average of 90 over a game would be considered world class. Now, if you're not averaging 100, you're nowhere in the big tournaments. So it really is upping the level. One other thing to mention about the summer series, we have the weight loss, which has been going on. And this is interesting. A lot of players, perhaps counterintuitively to what you might expect from darts players, <laughs> have been shedding the pounds over the break. The former world champion, Rob Cross, has lost three stone. Adrian Lewis, former world champion, he's lost a lot of weight. Michael Smith's lost a lot of weight. Yellow Klassen too. And it's showing in their form, actually. We've seen Adrian Lewis back to form that he hasn't shown for years. You know, feeling healthier, looking healthier. And, and performing better so it just goes to show that if you look after yourself even in a sport like darts which isn't inherently known for its physically fit players you can improve your game 
Yeah, admittedly, I've not really watched much of this on the series, but that has almost been the warm-up for what's been on this week in the world match play, where the top four didn't have too much of a great showing so far. We are only at the quarters, so... Not at all. We sort of kicked off with a real great way to set it up, which was Michael Van Gerwen, the world number one, making some controversial comments about the world number five, Michael Smith, just before the tournament. And he said, I'm not the most talented player in dart. He said, Michael Smith has more talent than me, but he doesn't use it the way I do. I use my head. So essentially throwing down the gauntlet to Michael Smith there, because Michael Smith, as any darts fan will know, is a very, very good player, great 180 hitter but he's never won a major tournament in his career. It's really a mental barrier for him, and he's missed key doubles and missed match darts to win big finals, and it's just all about getting over that final hurdle for him. So that really set things up nicely. But as you said, Sam, there were shocks all over the shop in the world match play. We saw all of the top four in the world knocked out for the quarterfinals, and actually, by the time the quarterfinals rolled around, 10 of the top 12 players in the world were out, and only... Only Gary Anderson was the last remaining former winner still in the tournament. So we've seen plenty of shocks and surprises. And as I said before, that the crowd not being there and the extended break has really thrown the tournament wide open. Yeah, and Gary Anderson won last night beating Simon Whitlock 16-12. Yeah, he's through to the same finals where he will face Michael Smith, who's actually his protege. Gary Anderson has been a bit of a mentor to Michael Smith, so it'll be interesting to see Master versus Apprentice. And the bottom half of the draw is absolutely wide open because... Gerwin Price, the world number three, he was knocked out in the first round. Rob Cross, the reigning world match play champion, he was knocked out in the first round. So it could be anyone, but I'd really like to see a resurgent Adrian Lewis, who's had a, a really tough time of it recently and has just started to return to form. It would be really good if he could get to the final. Is that who you think will win? I'm not sure if he'll win the whole tournament, to be honest. I think probably the winner will come out of that other half of the draw. Either Gary Anderson or Michael Smith, you'd have to say, would be the favourite. But I'd really like to see Adrian Lewis do it. The other contenders, just to name-check them, still in the quarterfinals, We've got Glenn Durrant, Vincent van der Voort and Dimitri van den Berg. Uh, but they are all well outside the top 10 in the rankings and, and ones that you'd, it would certainly go down as serious upset territory if any of those three were to win. And just one other thing to add about the coverage of the World Match Play, it's been a completely new look coverage because Dave Clark, who presented Slip Darts on Sky Sports for 20 years, retired due to medical reasons. He's been suffering from Parkinson's in recent years and actually really brave of him to continue to present for so long that he has retired. And also Rod Studd, the chief commentator, suffered a stroke a couple of months ago and he's still recovering from that, but thankfully he is recovering well and should be back in the commentary box soon. Yeah, Dave Clark, a hugely popular figure within not just the darts world, but I think sports broadcasting world as a whole for what he's done with darts. Absolutely iconic. And I think a lot of people can't remember darts before Dave Clark, to be honest. The previous presenter of Sky Sports Darts back in the 90s was one Jeff Stelling, whatever happened to him. But his first big job on Sky Sports was presenting the darts and obviously Dave Clark took over and Stelling went on to become known for Soccer Saturday of course and, and live football on Sky so it's a big shame and, and it's not really been decided who'll take over from Dave Clark either at the moment Nigel Pearson who's a, a commentator is sort of holding the fort but he said himself he's essentially the caretaker manager while they look for a a permanent presenter so we wait and see as I say I think Sky have done a very good job under the circumstances and it has been a really good tournament even without the crowd Just a quick question Toby um, you lead on to it well there you say without the crowds you asked me 
what impact did I think it's going to have on tennis? Do you think it's having any impact on the darts? I think it's having a massive impact, actually. And, and, and some of the players have commented about this as well. Simon Whitlock, who got to the quarterfinals and actually knocked out the world number one, Michael Van Gogh, in, in the second round. 11-4 he won. He absolutely thrashed him. And we haven't seen Van Gogh beat in that fashion that emphatically for many a year. When players have beaten him, it's always been nip and tuck. It's never been like that. And Whitlock actually said that part of the reason is the crowd not putting him off and allowing him to focus and not any sort of peripheral things going on and also not sort of cheering or jeering or whistling when there's doubles and things like that. He's, you know, made comments about, he hasn't specifically said about the jeering or the whistling, but he's made comments about the distraction of the crowd and how it's really helping the lesser players or lower ranked players the outsiders not to have the crowd some of them there and also these big stage players players that have been at the top of darts for many many years they've got used to the crowd and they're used to sort of performing in front of big audiences so it's more natural to them to come out and perform whereas players who are used to playing sort of in the leisure center tournaments and small tournaments who don't play in front of crowds very often it can be quite daunting and intimidating for them to play in front of a massive crowd once or twice a year, even when that crowd is on their side. Perhaps the same thing is true of certain players, junior players or lesser known players at Wimbledon as well. If that's the only chance they get all year to play in front of a massive crowd, it must be quite intimidating and puts the pressure on. Oh, yeah. Now, I know, Mark, you're not necessarily watched arts too much for one sport you are more interested in, which is making its podcast debut, as I mentioned earlier, is the Wisdom Tournament is on right now, which is an international tournament between, is it between the T20 team. No, it's not, it's not a T20, it's a five-day test match. The Wisdom Tournament. Everyone's yeah. showing how much I don't know about cricket. Yeah. <laughs> England and the West Indies, isn't it? Yeah, so I, before I go on, I will say now, I'm not a huge cricket fan. It's only really in the last few weeks I've been watching a bit at home and I'm sort of, I used to like it a lot and I'm slowly getting back into it but yeah the Wisdom Trophy has been quite enjoyable actually the return of international cricket the West Indies won the first test by four wickets but um, in the second test England and in particular Ben Stokes were really really good Ben Stokes got 176 in the first innings and 78 not out in the second innings so really really good showing from him and uh, Stuart Broad was bowling really well in the uh, the second test I think he got six wickets the second test and the so that means it's one all and uh, the Wisdom Trophy is over three tests so the third test which has started today. England are in battle, I believe. That will decide the tournament. It's been quite enjoyable. It was nice to see the first test. You know, England weren't brilliant in it, but the second test, it was nice to see them getting going. There was a, a debut for youngster Bess. I think he got a wicket or two, and it was nice to see him playing. But yeah, no, it's, it's been quite enjoyable. Chris Wokes has bowled well as well. Been a bit of controversy about Jofra Archer, hasn't there? Yes, I forgot. Um, I, I completely skipped over that. Yeah, um, Jofra Archer was sort of suspended from the tournament because as they travelled from Southampton, which is where the first test was played, they travelled up to Manchester, which is where the last two tests have been played. And en route, Jofra Archer, I believe it, he went home, but he, he definitely went somewhere that the players weren't 
allowed to do because obviously they've been told they need to keep themselves isolated and everything and he let them down a little bit there and he's he's had a fine he's suspended from the tournament it's hard to completely um strongly criticize him like with someone like Novak Djokovic who obviously came under a lot of criticism of you know essentially what he's done it's minor but it's against the rules so you know he's let himself down there and actually the team because he's a very important part of that England team yeah, and what the only other bit of cricket news we have to mention is that they announced a few weeks ago now that there'll be the Bob Willis Trophy, which will be the start of the regional county season. I think that starts on August the 1st now, named after the former bowler who sadly passed away in December. Now, the sports we've mentioned previously on the podcast so far have all been without crowd. The Snooker World Championships up in Sheffield at the Crucible is set to be a test dummy for some form of crowds coming back. This kind of ties nicely into a segment we've kind of started in controversial comments by Ronnie O'Sullivan, although I could be not too controversial this week by his standards, in which he said it's an unnecessary risk that he doesn't think he'd want to be putting any lives at risk, but he's prepared to do so. But he did open up the possibility of also a draw. And I just want to gauge your thoughts on the crowds coming back already with the snooker. We've seen quite a big rowing back on this, haven't we? Because the um, I think with football, they were originally planned to get half of stadiums full by October and the government's just come out in the last couple of days and actually revised those estimates down to between 17% and 33% of football stadiums might be able to be filled in the next few months so obviously that's not going to be great news for football grounds who are particularly lower league clubs who are reliant upon that revenue from bums on seats but I think the snooker it's slightly different isn't it it's a different crowd that go to snooker matches and I I don't know if it can be segregated in the same way because it's inside so I'm not really sure how that's going to work I would have argued that an outdoor sport would have been a better guinea pig for this type of thing to reintroduce crowds, possibly football or rugby or golf. It's a bit of a surprise to me that they've picked an indoor sport to try this out with. Yeah, I see your point, Toby. I think the only thing is that the the thing with football is that you risk, obviously when a goal goes in, you risk a lot of people ignoring the certain rules and, and sort of jumping up and down on each other and, and breaking everything. Whereas I guess with snooker, you can generally, you can think the crowd are probably going to be quite reliable in, in following the rules. Yeah, and I think you could also separate in the same way that they're putting up theatres and they're doing social distancing in theatres and that you kind of do something similar with the snooker. With snooker, I think, although it is indoors and it's not sort of the right, I mean, it's a good environment for coronavirus to spread, which is obviously a risk. I do think generally the fans aren't going to be silly at snooker, are they? I would assume. Yeah, the worst you're ever going to get is somebody's phone pinging, I think, in the <laughs> snooker. I don't think that the players sometimes get a bit tetchy about that, but I don't really think you see much else in the way of negative or bad behaviour in snooker really do you? Yeah there's certainly no shouting like there would be at the football and the rugby I know that you're not allowed to shout at the football and pubs either at the moment no There sh- aren't any Marco Fu ultras are there? I don't <laughs> think they really exist no, And one thing I did want to touch on with the World Championships is a new piece that you made me aware of Toby is that we nearly had a 14 year old come close to qualifying in a name I'm going to butcher of course, it wouldn't be a podcast without me butchering a name, <laughs> Boyko <laughs> Lillian from Ukraine. However, there was a 15-year-old which has qualified beyond to the Ukrainian from Belgium. His name's Ben Mertens. He actually beat James Cahill 6-2, who I think beat Rolio Sullivan last year. A pretty good victory for a 15-year-old. I think the record before was held by Rochelle, who recently won 
the last Super Tournament, which name has gone over my head right now. They're getting younger and younger, aren't they? And I mean, Mike will be able to relate to this with the um, heroics of Coco Gauff as well when she started off. But yeah, Boyko, very unfortunate for him, actually, because it would have been a record-breaking bid. And I think it would have been pretty incredible to have a 14-year-old competing alongside sort of the greats of snooker. But he was in the last round, yeah, last qualifying round to get to the Crucible, the Ukrainian. But hopefully, better look for him next year when he's got another year under his belt. It's interesting. I'm, I'm not a huge snooker fan myself, but I, I do watch it when it's on the World Championship. Championship. Ukraine isn't a country I would have associated with snooker. Are there? Do you know if there's many Ukrainian players, or is it just this this young guy? None of us spring I'm, to my mind. No, yeah. I can't think of any others either. To be honest, I mean Ukraine aren't particularly known for sort of indoor sports in general. I wouldn't have said, but there we go. No. There is said yeah. to be a hot crop of obviously these two, a hot crop of young talent coming through. There's a few others at a similar age there that I was reading there. Not too far off their level either. So perhaps we could see a lot of young, fresh faces on the snooker scene very soon. That pretty much concludes the big talking points today. We've got some smaller news stories which are going to brush over, starting off with the Olympics. Yes, this is brief story that the Games may still not go ahead. It's They have obviously been postponed till 2021, but it's not certain that the games will go ahead. They could still be axed. And the claim has been made by Yoshiro Mori, who is president of the organising committee in Japan for the games next July. And he was asked by Japanese TV whether if the current situation continues, it is possible to hold the games in 2021. And he replied, if the current situation continues, we couldn't. But however, he has said he doesn't expect the situation to last for another year, although the Japanese were holding off cancelling the Olympics when this was all breaking out. And it became, I think, obvious to everyone apart from the organisers that it wouldn't be able to go ahead in 2020. So I think obviously going to be a huge opportunity for Japan, both in terms of the publicity and the, and the hopefully for them the tourism and things like that. So I think they'd be very reluctant to call it off completely. But if it has to keep being postponed and postponed, then perhaps it, it can't go ahead. We're better to just wait until 2024, which I think is going to be in Paris. I'll be very surprised if crowds are back. And if they are, they certainly won't be in the same capacity when you've got so many people from travelling from every corner of the globe. I am glad, though, that it is with Japan that are holding this Olympics and not necessarily like a poorer country like Brazil, where they would have poured all their money into the Olympics to bet on it, to have this massive economy boost and then not lose it. Of course, it's still a big loss to Japan, but they're a pretty wealthy country. Yeah, I think Japan seem like a, a fairly responsible country as well. I think out of all of the countries you could have the Olympics in, Japan definitely is is one of the the better ones at the moment. And I think they dealt, it, yeah, um, they dealt with the disease quite well, haven't they? They did. They dealt very well, and so, so did South Korea over in that part of the world. I think uh, obviously it's so early to tell, but I think if the games do go ahead, I would be quite confident that they'll be done successfully in whatever. Obviously, it's, like like you say, it's not going to be the same form. With um, there's not going to be all the fans there, and it's going to be very different. But I could imagine that Japan might be able to pull it off quite well. Moving on from the biggest sporting event in the calendar, for now the biggest event in the horse racing flat season in the Epsom Derby which was a few weeks ago now but we haven't had a chance to cover it where we've had we had a, a massive outside winner yes one by Serpentine at 25 to 1 trained by Aidan O'Brien it was his eighth 
Derby win, but not one of his fancied horses. He, he tends to enter a few into the Derby, and this was sort of an outsider. A front runner went straight to the front, uh, built up a massive lead, and the others thought they could reel him in and didn't really pay him much attention. But they gave him too much start, and they couldn't reel him in as it was. And jockeys like Frankie Dettori and Ryan Moore, the you know the top flat jockeys in the world, they'll have been very disappointed, I think, to have made such a mistake and let Serpentine get as far ahead as he did but a brilliant ride it must be said by Emmett McNamara I think his first derby ride and what a way to mark that with a win but yeah a, a really memorable derby actually and always good to see an outsider win it and not one of the fancied favourites the bookies I'm sure were celebrating and there's also been a huge retirement in horse racing too there has massive retirement uh, Barry Geraghty one of the great jockeys of his generation and of all time really he's the uh, fourth greatest jockey in terms of winners he um, had 1920 winners in his 20 year or over 20 year career the age of 40 he's coming up to 41 and he just made the decision to quit because of injury he said you can't go on forever broken all sorts in his in his life as many jockeys have he broke both legs both arms his ribs, his shoulder blade, and a punctured lung as well. So he's, he's really had the full work, and as most jump jockeys tend to do. And he says, at my age now, it catches up with you, and it takes longer to get back. I've gone out on my own terms rather than out on a stretcher. He rode 43 winners in the um, Cheltenham Festival, which is the second most of all time. And memorable winners for him would have been when he won the Grand National in 2003 on Monty's Pass. And he also won four champion hurdles, two Cheltenham Gold Cups, which were on Kicking King and Bobsworth, and five champion chases as well. So he's won the lot in horse racing and jumps racing. And he can be very proud of a brilliant career. And we're very interested to see where he goes next, whether it's into punditry, or whether it's into training his own horses. Moving on to someone that's at the start of their great career in golf, we have a new number one overtaking Rory McIlroy. It's John Rahm, age 25, the fourth youngest to do so after Woods, McIlroy and Spieth. The second Spanish golfer to achieve this after he won the Memorial Tournament over in the US. Yeah, I think he's been up and coming for some time, John Rahm. I was listening to an interview with him yesterday and he said it's been his aspiration to become world number one since the age of 13 or 14. So this has been you know an, an ambition he's held for quite a while but still young still plenty ahead of him and the only thing left for John Rahm now is to win one of those four majors uh, preferably I'm sure the green jacket at Augusta in the Masters and Bob Bubka the uh, golf commentator often heard on talk sport and one of the leading authorities in golf for many years said it's not a question of when John Rahm wins a major tournament it's a question of how many John Rahm wins he is going to be one of the greats of the game, I think, in many people's estimation. And good to see him at number one. And it's really going to give the likes of McElroy and Brooks Kepka and Jordan Spieth something to think about now, I think. I was just going to say, I think there's definitely a danger, though, when players do sort of get very high very early on in their career because and I hate to bring everything back to tennis, but if you... <laughs> You say, obviously, we've got a young player who's looking very good and we're hoping, and you say it's a case of how many majors he wins. But I do wonder if that added pressure can have a negative impact on him because we've seen in, in tennis, you've got, like said, Milos Rajnic got to the Wimbledon final. Say Dominic Team is the classic, isn't it? Uh, no, I, w- I wouldn't say I wouldn't say so because Dominic Team has been consistently improving for a long time now. And I think, I guess maybe I'm, I'm doing what I'm saying we shouldn't do here, but I think Team 
probably is going to win one. I mean more players like um, Milos Rajnic got to the Wimbledon final 2016. Last couple of years, he's essentially been unheard of. He, he's sort of differing around sort of 30, 40 ranked. Um, he's certainly not doing badly. He made the quarterfinals of Wimbledon last year. But um, So I'm just wondering with the golf player, if when people say things like that, it's a case of how many he wins. I, sometimes I just don't think that's helpful. And I think he might, maybe he's going to feel a lot of pressure now. And, and we've seen in other sports the negative impact I think that can have. That's a very good point. Remaining in the US now, we've got our last piece of sporting news. And it's a gigantic 10-year contract in the NFL for the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. Now, got some stats on what that works out. And I think it works out as how people tend to measure things. It's 212 billion Freddos. Uh, not 212, 2 billion and 12 million. Works out $95 a minute, 967k a week, 138k a day. And it's just ridiculous. It's the first time we've had a contract of this length in the NFL. They tend to be given out at that length in baseball and just pretty rare in sport in general, but let alone at that price. I'm just trying to think of if there's any footballers that have ever been signed up to anything resembling that in terms of contract length. I think six years is probably the most that I've heard of. Alan Partridge's contract, was that seven years? Well, yeah, there was. out the other day. Yeah, (laughs) seven or eight years, I think. But just thinking players, I know there's been lots of PR puff about Messi supposedly being on a lifetime contract at Barcelona, but every single year he seems to be agitating for a move, mostly to get a pay rise, I think. So I'm not sure how much we believe that. But it certainly does put some of our European whinging about high footballer wages to shame, doesn't it, when there's players in America... What was it, £300 million over 10 years? Certainly not to be sniffed at. And even after 10 years, I think even after 10 years, he's only going to be in his early 30s. And when you consider the likes of Tom Brady are still going at 41, he might have another one of those contracts left in him. Yeah, there's one comparison that was drawn to, I can't remember the exact details, but there was a a Mets player in, in baseball who's 70 or 71 now, and they're still paying him... I think it's a million and something dollars each year, just some legend of the game. And I'm not sure why he's got this big contract. I think he still has some association with them. But that was the most comparable thing. They had it in terms of how ridiculous it is. That's criminal, that is. (laughs) Mascot players, isn't it? Yeah, I should have become a baseball player. (laughs) Now, moving into our segment. The Sporting Question. Each week, I ask a multiple choice question to both Sam and the guest. And they're both going to give their guess and sit, we'll see who gets it right and currently in the championship played two and it's Sam nil guests nil because nobody has correctly answered either of the questions I've asked so far so we'll see if Mike can do better than Adam and Carlo managed uh, <laughs> or whether Sam can finally take the lead. How many choices do I get? It's a four choice question and the Ooh. guest gets to go first so here is today's sporting question. Who was the last woman to win the BBC Sports Personality of the Year? Was it Rebecca Adlington, Dame Jessica Ennis-Hill, Zara Phillips, or Dame Kelly Holmes? Mike, your answer first, please. Good question. Um, So, Rebecca Adlington, Jess Ennis, Zara Phillips, Kelly Holmes. Uh, I think, I think Jessica Ennis, that's what I'm going to say. I think I think that's what I'm leaning towards, but I don't know. Over to you, Sam. 
Well, as soon as you said this, before you read out the answers, I was confident I knew the answer, which is probably a bad sign going on recent weeks. But I'm going to be boring. I do want to actually agree with Mike, Jessica Ennis Hill. I don't believe Rebecca Addington's won it, and the same as Zara Phillips. No. Dane Kelly Holmes would have been before Jessica yeah. Ennis. So that's also my final answer. Well, I can tell you that the correct answer is... Zara Phillips. Oh, brilliant. Um, um, so I'm afraid to say it's going to be nil-nil for the third week running. I was thinking Zara Phillips, but I just thought, I just thought surely Jessica Ennis has won it. Well, I can tell you the info. I thought she'd won it until I did the research for this question. I think everyone just assumes that she has won it. She's been placed four times. She's been in the top three four times, including second place in 2012. But she's never actually won the oh. award. That's when um, I was thinking she won it, and I think Bradley Wiggins won it that year because of the Tour de France. He did. The You're absolutely right. Andy Murray's won it three times. <laughs> has never won it. Never won it. Rebecca Adlington came third in 2008. Dame Kelly Holmes did win it. You were right there, Mike, but she won it in 2004, so quite a long time ago. Zara Phillips won it in 2006 for eventing, so she's the last, that's the last woman to win it. That's yeah, really bad. This That's is really what I've been saying. I called for this last year. I think the BBC should split the award up. Yeah, it should be like the Oscars. And we should have Sportsman of the Year and Sportswoman of the Year. Because yeah. because of the uh, lack of coverage that's given to a lot of women's sports, it's not really a, a not level a playing fight. field. It's not a fair yeah. fight. Now we'll move on to our final segment. A niche sport from around the world. Our niche sport this week is actually inspired from a podcast that I've done that hasn't gone up yet. They'll be up in the next week or so guy who done 365 sports in 365 days around the world actually the world records biggest sports fan a lot of these sports he did do a lot of smaller sports and it kind of inspired me to look at what sports were local to us there's one that was quite uh, an interesting name shall we say near dorset it's called knob proin now, just on that, what, what do you think it is? It's, um, I know this, it's... Um, is it something to do with butter? A knob yeah. of butter? Isn't it, um, it's something to do with food, I'm sure. It is, it's, you are kind of so, on the right tracks with the butter because it's butter biscuits and it's yeah. a, a traditional biscuit that they have to throw Didn't longest distance. Didn't it get cancelled this year? Yeah, I'm sure I saw something well. in the Echo about this. They had yeah. a virtual knob throwing contest. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Uh, held in, well, Dorchester now apparently it attracted 8,000 people in the previous year it went ahead. So they must have something else going on, like a county fair, but just a little interesting one with an interesting name. That Blimey. concludes the podcast today. As we said, mentioned earlier, Mike has his podcast. If you like tennis, tennis fanalist, worth checking out. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks for Mike for joining us and Toby, thank of you, course. Cheers, pleasure. And we'll see you next time. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Ultimate Sport P. On Instagram, it's the Ultimate Sports Podcast. And follow us on any streaming service that you use to receive your podcast. And we'll see you next time.